2: I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music.
0: Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. 40 years ago, Big Star released its landmark debut, Number One Record, forging a power pop sound we know and love today.
3: I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Greg and I return to our double classic album dissection of Big Star's Number One Record and Radio City. And later, Soundgarden is back. But better than ever, that's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You are listening to Sound Opinions,
0: and time now for some music news.
3: Well, Greg, I assume you have already completed your shopping for me for this Christmas. (laughs) I wish. But many of us haven't hopped on it yet, and we're about to do that right after Thanksgiving. It's time. But we thought, given that we're going to be in the midst now of the holiday shopping season, we would give our listeners a brief service and pick a couple of favorites, each of us, for this holiday season as gifts for the music lover in your life. People who listen to this show have heard us rail at Capitol Records in the past for selling, reselling, and re-reselling us the Beatles extensive catalog. Selling us these records that we have to own. I actually think this is an expensive but well worthwhile and incredible Beatles gift. Yes, the Beatles Stereo Vinyl Box Set is out for this holiday. Upwards of around $300. All 13 studio albums, as we knew them in the American releases, plus the two past Masters collections of odds and ends, accompanied by a 250-page hardbound book in a great, beautiful-looking box pressed on 180-gram vinyl. There's something about the Beatles on vinyl.
1: I am here as you are.
3: My other pick for the uh, holiday gift guide this season is also by another heritage act, as they say in the business. Pink Floyd Reflections and Echoes is a new four-DVD box set of interview material mostly, tracing the band, telling its story in its own words, the making of each album, the tours, the different eras of that band. It's rare to get these guys to talk. You know, Waters is recalcitrant. Gilmore doesn't really say much. Wright is now dead. Interviews with all the main members, and then all sorts of fascinating other people. Can you tell I'm geeking about this? I love Pink Floyd. I'm I'm really looking forward to finding that set under the Christmas tree. I'm going to go over the literary
0: side of the equation, Jim. This is a big season for rock star memoirs. Neil Young, Pete Townsend, Rod Stewart all have them out. But I'm going to recommend one from David Byrne, How Music Works. Burn the modern multimedia guys on theater, movies, music, obviously. Pretty good writer, though. There are points in How Music Works where it gets a little bit textbooky. He talks about the evolution of the music industry in the last few decades, the way the music is made, manufactured, distributed, consumed, the amazing changes that have gone on in that. But it's great when he starts talking specifics about his own career. And he gives us some hard numbers about how some of his records have sold, the ones that have done well, the ones that haven't done so well, and he Analyzes why they did or didn't succeed in terms of distribution models, in terms of what he was trying to accomplish and how well he did it. The other thing is, Burns, a famously private individual. I haven't heard him talk a lot, for example, about his early development as a musician pre Talking Heads. Well, here he starts giving us some really good stories. And now I get a better picture of this guy in the talking heads before he got into that band. The other other thing I'm going to recommend is a box set from the great folk soul singer Bill Withers, the complete Sussex and Columbia albums. Now it's about 60-70 bucks. You're going to get 9 studio albums, basically the entirety of Bill Withers' mm. career from 1971 to the mid-80s. Withers I think is one of the most underrated voices of that generation.
1: I just call lonely brother.
0: had a few hits, and then just went away. He didn't get into the business until he was about 30 years old. He was installing toilet seats and jet airliners for a living before he had a music career. But I think that sound has really resonated. And you can go back to those albums in the 70s and 80s, and they still hold up remarkably well. If you don't want to dish out 60 bucks, just get one Bill Withers record, and that is live at Carnegie Hall. It's included in this box set. I think it's one of the best live records ever made.
3: listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that was In the Street by Big Star. Now, you might know Cheap Trick's cover of the song because it was the theme from that 70s show, but the original version is from number one record, the debut by Big Star. This was a band of four kids from Memphis, raised in the capital of Seoul, who fell in love with the sounds of the British invasion. They merged the two for an unforgettable mix. There was Alex Chilton, he was a McCartney, if you will, and Chris Bell, his John Lennon. Now, Chilton had already had a major career as a child singer in the box tops before he linked up Borrowed Bell's Band, which featured the wonderful rhythm section of Andy Hummel on bass and Jody Stevens on drums. Jim, there's no doubt that they're one of the most
0: influential, if not the most influential band in power pop history after the Beatles. Number one record, uh, wishfully titled, it might be added. It, of course, never topped the Billboard chart, But these guys changed music history in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all without selling a lot of albums. Now, 2012 marks the 40th anniversary of that debut release, and the release of a documentary about the band called Nothing Can Hurt Me. This year, Power Pop seems as big as ever. I mean, we're talking about new albums from bands like the DBs, Red Cross, and the Shoes extending that legacy. So this is a perfect time to revisit our double classic album dissection of Number 1 record and its 1974 follow-up, Radio City. We got some help with this dissection from Big Star drummer Jody Stevens. We spoke with him in 2009 after the reissue of both albums and the release of the box set Keep an Eye on the Sky. Only a few months later, singer-songwriter Alex Chilton died. So let's go back
3: and remember Big Star. Jody, welcome to Sound Opinions.
4: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
3: Um, Let's start at the beginning. Famously, Alex Chilton had already had one career. Did he come to you kind of uh, jaded and bitter already about this music industry, or how did he approach you to start this new project?
4: Well, you know, Chris, Andy, and I had a band together, and we were playing as a three-piece at the time, and uh, actually met Alex at a gig we were playing at the VFW Hall here in Memphis. And uh, it just all clicked, and he joined into what we were doing, and... At that point, we became big star.
3: Was there any uh, tension early on in Chris Bell, an extraordinary singer and songwriter himself? You know, you and, and Chris Bell and Andy Harmel already were a band, and now a second singer and songwriter is being added in.
4: Well, the the addition of Alex was, you know, a little more vocal power, another lead singer, another creative mind in terms of songwriting abilities, and uh, and certainly his, his uh, guitar playing... Uh, Both very creative guitar players, different a bit stylistically, though still melodically based. And, you know, two guys that paid attention to the guitar sounds they were getting and were, you know, pretty mindful
3: of those. How much of the aesthetic was already there? The ringing, chiming, Beatlesque pop, but, but with that southern soul. Did Big Star sound like Big Star even before Alex Chilton joined?
4: Well, to an extent, we uh, did. You know, Life is Right was a song, a track that was cut prior to Alex joining the band. And, you know, Alex had made some additions to the song after joining in. ¶¶ There's definitely a pretty heavy shading or influence uh, by Alex on what we were doing, but you know, the, the kind of Jangly Beatley thing was, was definitely there. Alex added a bit more of a folky touch.
0: Well, and you were doing this band in the heart of Memphis. I mean, how much was what Stax was doing in Memphis influencing you, and how much was that British music? Uh, it w- did you feel like it was a merger of those two things?
4: Well, you know, the original, original attraction to music was, was the Beatles. But, you know, around 68 or so, I uh, I was exposed to Stax and, and what was coming out of there, and it moved me emotionally. I had to respond in some way. So, it, you know, those were two forms of music that meant much to me, both, well, certainly creatively, but emotionally as well.
0: Big Star's debut record in 1972, you, you named it number one record. Obviously, tongue in cheek, but also, was there some feeling that you guys had made a record that was going to be a number one record? I mean, were the aspirations like that? Did you talk about the fact that, hey, this is this is really good stuff, and it deserves to be a number one record?
4: You know, we we all had those feelings. The name Big Star was pretentious. Uh, number one record is is like you were saying; it's a chart position, a hopeful chart position, I guess. And Billboard, I guess, we had those aspirations of of seeing that success. And certainly, I thought. The material merited that at the time I'd kind of like to think that it doesn't now in terms of mainstream radio but
3: <laughs> does anything stand out for you uh Jody in the making of that record what was this what were the sessions like
4: for that record we actually rehearsed songs prior going into the record and so the sessions were all, are always pretty thoughtful times because it's My first official record, uh, these are parts that, um, you know, you stop and think about it. They are parts that people will hear from then on forever. I don't know. Now now that I think about it, that's a pretty weighty thing to to consider going into making a record and creating drum parts and that sort of thing. There were both intentional and, and pretty spontaneously creative moments going on. And as each kind of layer was added to these songs, it was even that much more exciting. And then certainly you get down to mixing the record, and we were, for number one record and in Radio City, we were involved in that, certainly with number one record, because there was a lot going on. And, and at the time, there were manual consoles for mixing, so John Fry enlisted the help of us to, uh, you know, turn knobs and, and uh, push faders up and down, so it's kind of like Twister at the consoles.
0: When I, when I interviewed Chilton a f- uh, number of years ago, he said that he and Bell were essentially writing separately, even though most of the songs are written or listed as collaborations. What was your recollection of that uh, collaboration, and how what were the songs presented to the rest of the band?
4: You know, the, the songs were pre- presented to the rest of the band, you know, the best of my recollection, anyway, uh, is fairly complete. There may have been lyrical changes, but pretty much Alex and Chris, had I think, had defined their parts by the time Andy and I were involved. I was just having listened to the box set to sort of refresh my memory, and if I'm reading things into this correctly, watch the sunrise. You know, Chris had the music to that, but um, had a different set of lyrics and even different melody line, and then uh, it sounds like Alex was introduced to the big star lineup and, and came up with something better and wound up doing the lead vocal for it.
1: I can feel it Now it's time Open your eyes Fears be gone It won't be long There's a light In the skies It's a
0: And yet it seemed like you had a lot of, I'm just guessing, but there was certainly an inventiveness in the way you were playing those drum parts that, you know, some of those fills on, you know, My Life is Right or the way that the last chorus of Ballad of El Gudo jumps. (laughs) Those are kind of really iconic drum fills now. People reference those all the time. And I take it that you were given enough freedom to sort of do that.
4: Well, you know, I had a lot of freedom uh, in creating parts. It's not to say that there weren't suggestions made and, and it points really good ones. but on one hand, it was a, an, an impulsive kind of thing. and on another on the other hand, it was, uh, you know, it was pretty well thought out in terms of how those drum fills would build during the course of the song. I you know I, I always tried to to play musically. I, I wasn't really content to just keep a beat.
3: Was it uh, Keith Moon or, or who were you emulating, Jody, as a young drummer?
4: No, oh, it, it could be. De- it would depend on the moment. But uh, you know, Ringo certainly was was a huge influence and uh, and an impact as as part of the Beatles and getting me, getting me into music. But uh, certainly Keith Moon, uh, even B J Wilson from. Uh, Procol Harum, yeah, and uh, John Bonham certainly, and yeah. uh, wow, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. Uh, that, that's a Booker heck of a list.
3: T- heck of a list. Well, <laughs> Booker T. and the
4: MGs drummer, uh, yeah, yeah, Al
3: Jackson and Al Jackson,
4: like yeah, Al Jackson, a great player.
3: Yeah, yeah. One of the curiosities for me on on number one record has always been uh, the India song. I just love the notion of these young musicians sitting in Memphis dreaming of this idyllic life in, like, colonial British India.
4: (laughs) I love that song.
3: That's my favorite song on this record. Now, that was an Andy Hummel song, right?
4: Yes, and it's even in this box set, there's, there's a version of that where it's primarily Andy singing, and it's even more endearing because there's a bit more innocence in his delivery than when... Alex's vocal was added to his, and they they sing in unison. And I don't mean, you know, a sophistication in terms of Alex, but, you know, Alex is a lead singer, and uh, his delivery is a little more confident. (laughs) I'd like to go to India, live in a big white house in the forest, drink gin and tonics, and play a grand piano. Yeah, read it's a just few beautiful. Books. It's uh, damnation, what a notion. What Wouldn't everybody
0: <laughs> love to do that?
1: Yeah.
0: We're going to continue looking back at Big Star's number one record in Radio City with drummer Jody Stevens in just a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, we review the reunion effort from Soundgarden, and I put a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and you've been listening to our double classic album dissection of number one record and Radio City by the power pop pioneers Big Star. Number one record came out in 1972, 40 years ago, and Radio City followed a year later. But both those albums were reissued in 2009. We spoke with Big Star drummer Jody Stevens at that time when those reissues came out just a year before the death of frontman Alex Chilton. Now, we're revisiting our conversation in celebration of Number One Record's 40th anniversary. Jim, you know, listening back to those records, I was struck by how amazing they still sound. That first record, in particular, sounds meticulously recorded. So we asked Jody about working in the studio and the role of producer John Fry. Well, in terms of sonics,
4: John had a major role. John was the executive producer, the band, and then more specifically, I guess Chris and Alex, and probably Andy. But it was we were to some extent following Chris's vision. Chris was pretty meticulous, and, and uh, had spent—you can tell—spent many hours in the studio developing guitar sounds and parts, and uh, experimenting. And so, yeah, there was a bit more of a meticulous record, but.
3: Well, what happened there, Jody? Number one record comes out in late 1972. It does not become a number one record. By the time we get to Radio City and and the the sessions for that, uh, only like a year later, you guys are moving pretty quickly, Chris is no longer in the band. It's a different group. What what, what happened in that interim?
4: Well, you know, it was Chris's decision to leave the band. Um, I think he just saw himself as being overshadowed by... Alex's presence, and that's not that wasn't derived from anybody in the band, especially Alex. It was derived more from a, a journalist perspective of the band, and and you know I think any journalist would point out that Alex had been in the Box Tops, and uh, the Box Tops were a successful band, but you know I, I th- again I think Chris saw himself as uh, ooh, operating in the shadow of, of Alex. So Chris left the band. At that point, I just remember sort of drifting apart and not really breaking up or, you know, no conscious decision to do that. And then as John King was putting this rock writers convention together that included, oh, I don't know, Bud Scoppel was there and Cameron Crow and Dave Marsh. Lester, and Bangs, Lester Bangs, I wrote about
3: that a lot. Yeah, It was apparently an infamous yeah, gathering.
4: Lester, yeah, Lester Bangs and all that. As, as John was putting that together, he asked us to join with a performance and it was more of a... Well, you know, rock writers were our audience. They were the ones that actually got the record. <laughs> Everybody else had a really, you know, in general, it's we weren't getting any radio play, and records weren't widely available just because, you know, distribution was, distribution efforts were, weren't that great. So at any rate, rock writers were indeed our audience, and, and our audience was, was asking if, if we'd played the show. Alex, Andy, and I agreed to do it, and... And did, and just damn, it was a you know it was a wild conference and a wild show, and that I think motivated us all to get back together and uh, do Radio City. Say-
0: This was a record where, where Alex was much more firmly in control. There wasn't the two-songwriter thing as much uh, going on. Well, could you pinpoint the differences between the two, Jody? What was it that Alex and, and Chris each brought to the table?
4: Wow, it's you know, they both brought a sense of melody, certainly, and a sense of emotion. Their guitar-playing styles were a bit different. I think Alex may have been a little more fluid guitar player. Alex may... Uh, Certainly, eventually he wound up being a much more spontaneous musician in his performances and and, and the band itself. Whereas you know Chris would labor over parts and songs, so I'd, in the end it was Chris was a bit more studious and, and meticulous about it, and Alex more spontaneous.
3: Do you remember Jody the day that Alex comes in and uh, gives you a tape or plays you a song called September Girls?
4: You know, I I don't remember that day in particular, but I know I must have been elated. It was just exciting from the opening chords. That song came off pretty quickly. The drum part for it, I didn't have to think about it much.
3: So it isn't just us as fans and listeners. The first time you hear that song, there's a magic there and you instantly say, Yeah, this is a this is a great one.
4: Yes. You know, I wasn't the writer and it was it was just amazing to hear well, with Run number one record Chris and Andy and Alec or Chris and Alex bring in a song Because these these were songs at least for me, that were comparable to the cover songs that I'd been playing.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a toughness to to this record, too, that I think was more evident than on the first record. I'm thinking of like Oh My Soul. I think you do really come through with that stacks meets Brit Rock merger, and the way your drumming answers Alex's guitar. Just a massive drum sound, and, and Alex has got this very tough rhythm guitar line going through it. Do you remember how that song came together?
4: Uh, sure. Interesting. I'd, I'd taken a percussion class at what was then Memphis State, and uh, a guy named Terry Hewlett was a percussion teacher, and um, he had kind of reintroduced me to flams and paradiddles and all that sort of thing. And, and there was something about that that triggered how I approached Oh My Soul. just one of those things that Alex starts that guitar part the intensity that the, the energy and the aggressive aggressiveness that he plays with would set the tone for how I would play mm-hmm.
3: so so number 1 record had come out and not set the world on fire radio City's released did it do any better jody
4: <laughs> no it didn't <laughs> it uh and you know consequently it, because it didn't do any better commercially Although you know people like yourself, journalists, said really nice things about it, it kind of was the, the the deciding factor in Andy Hummel leaving the band it's I think he decided at that point that well, you know we really can't make a career out of this or even a living
3: i I mean it's got to be a horrible mix of feelings. people are writing incredible things about this band, but we're not selling any records, and I can't pay the rent um was there ever any inkling in those dark days that a couple of decades hence you guys would be considered, you know, one of the most influential American bands ever? <laughs> you know, and you have your R.E.M.s and all these other superstars consistently dropping the name Big Star, Big Star.
4: Well, you know, I think, I par- I think my parents thought that. Really? But outside, outside, they were always incredibly supportive. But, uh, you know, those weren't really dark days. We got great reviews. And while we didn't sell any records, I don't know, that just didn't seem to be a big deal to me. Mm. I knew music was a long shot. It had, it had succeeded on the level that uh, was, you know, satisfying to me.
0: Well, and the big star myth just continues to grow. You know, you've got cheap, cheap Trick covering in the street for the theme song for that 70s show. You know, Alex has had a song written about him by The Replacements. Looking back... Has your perspective on the legacy of the band changed at all because of this continuing adulation that you've been getting? I mean, do you think the music is as good as you ever thought it was, or was it a case of, well, I didn't know it then, but I sure know it now, that you know, what we did then was, was really accomplished?
4: Oh, I can't speak for the world, but uh, at the time, it was really exciting music for me. It was just brilliant stuff. It is interesting, though, how this, how these songs evolved, and uh, to go from, in w- one case, an acoustic demo to the master version of the song on the record, it's uh, a huge leap.
0: Well, that says a lot about the band. The, the sum is greater than the parts in a lot of ways, right?
4: You know, I always thought we were a band, and uh, those records sound the way they do because we were a band and we all made contributions and, and we all in in some form or fashion shaped and, and colored the way those albums sound
3: well these albums absolutely endure and it's been a pleasure uh, talking about Big Star with you Jody Stevens thanks for coming on the show thank you it was a pleasure Love.
0: Listening to Sound Opinions and our classic album dissection of two records by the Memphis Power Pop Quartet Big Star. Number one record and Radio City. You know, whenever we do these dissections, we like to play a track or two to illustrate why these are classic records. And today we're talking about two of them. I want to play something from the first one, number one record. Alex Chilton died a couple of years ago, and his name is probably the one most associated with this band for obvious reasons. He had that huge pedigree coming in with the box tops, and post-Big Star, he was still a very successful and influential singer-songwriter and producer. But the guy who sort of gets left out of the discussion a lot, Jim, I think, is is Chris Bell, his, oh, his alter ego in this band. Uh, you know, it was it was really Bell's band, and Chilton joined it and sort of overwhelmed things a little bit by the force of his personality and talent. But Bell was equally involved in that first record. Um, they co-wrote a lot of songs together. And Bell's voice and sensibility were a big part of that sound.
3: Why Big Star sounded the way it did. I wrote a piece in the early 90s, Greg, that was controversial among power pop fans, arguing that Bell was as great a talent as Mm -hmm. Chilton. If you stack it up, each wrote half, pretty much, of the first album. Right. And then Bell was pulling away when Radio City was being made, but, but he did contribute several of the best tracks. After he left the band... Chilton made one more masterpiece as big star with the third album, while Bell made one masterpiece of a solo album called I Am the Cosmos. That's two and a half brilliant (laughs) records each. I think they were very much Lennon and McCartney, two equally talented greats.
0: Yeah, they were. And uh, the problem was that uh, Bell's stuff didn't really come out until well after his death in 1978 at age 26 in a car crash. So a lot of his contributions were obscured. He had a very troubled life. He was dealing with depression, heroin addiction. There were some questions about his sexuality that he himself was struggling with. I think he poured a lot of those anxieties into his music, and you can hear it on the very first song on the very first Big Star album. It's called Feel, and even though it's credited to Bell Chilton, and and Chilton certainly had a role in it, it is very much a Chris Bell track. It's a track that predates the start of of Big Star. It's a very simple track in a lot of ways. Uh, Lyrically, it's just dealing with the the typical boy-girl issues that a lot of Big Star songs dealt with anyway. But in it, you can hear the contrast between the swagger. It's almost metallic in parts, where he's uh, emulating Robert Plant, I think, in parts of this song. And then it gets to the chorus, and there's that swooning... I feel like I'm dying part where this vulnerability just rushes into the song. So there's a contrast between this macho swagger augmented by the Memphis horns and then this part of the song where you feel that this guy is just dying before your eyes. And I think that exemplifies, I think, what Chris Bell brought to Big Star, that emotional complexity and at the same time just completely laying it on the line in these beautiful pop songs. So here it is from Big Star. A song called Feel from Number One Record, as written by Chris Bell on Sound Opinions.
3: Feel by Big Star on Sound Opinions from their debut number one record. A nice choice, Mr. Cott. I could listen to Chris Bell sing all day long. But I want to highlight a song from the band's second album, Radio City. Now, as you mentioned, Greg, Chilton went on to have a successful solo career. The Replacements wrote a song about him. He's the legend. It looms large. But it's this song, September Girls, that cements Alex Chilton's reputation. It is, by far, the best-known big star song it should have been. A number one hit single (laughs) in 1974 when it was released and it should have held the charts for like six or nine months because it is quite simply a perfect pop song one of the greatest ever written I would put this next to any single by the Beatles September Girls the influence lives on there would be no REM Peter Buck has said this without that chiming guitar sound Mm -hmm. and the way the riff is so melodic and carries you through the song that wonderful break you know where Alex Chilton says ooh when she makes love to me and then you you get this melody it sweeps you away and you feel like like you're in the moment. What does it mean? I, I don't know. I've been looking at this song, listening to this song forever and in the myriad cover versions because the Bangles did it, had some success with it and the Searchers and Superdrag. September Girls do so much. I was your butch and you were touched. Again, there's that, you know, it's this period of uh, sexual liberation, mm-hmm. pansexuality, the <laughs> glam rock let's experiment era. I think Alex Chilton's playing with that a little bit. This September girl has broken his heart. He's been crying all the time. December boy's got it bad. It doesn't really mean anything. There's only three verses of four lines each, and uh, they don't really say anything. It's sort of a haiku. It's more about the mood of this September girl, and you're the December boy. Here it is on Sound Opinions, a true power-pop masterpiece. Big star, September girls. September.
0: That's the Alex Chilton Penn song, September Girls, wrapping up our classic album dissection of Big Star's first two albums, Number One Record and Radio City. We want to invite you to share your thoughts on The Late Singer, Big Star, or anything else in the world of rock and roll at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Chris Cornell seeks redemption, and I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I am here with Greg Cott, and that is a song called "Been Away Too Long" by Soundgarden from their new record, King Animal. And Greg, it's an understatement. Been away too long—sixteen years since the last Soundgarden studio album, 1996—is down on the upside. Who was Soundgarden? The kids in the audience ask. Okay. The whole Seattle shebang of the 90s, you heard about that. It started with a band (laughs) called Green River that was half of what would become Soundgarden and half of what would become Pearl Jam. Soundgarden was really picked early on as the band that was going to blow Seattle up worldwide. They had this punk consciousness, but the sound was rooted very much in the classic heavy metal of Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. In 1991, they put out a record called Bad Motor Finger, which was going to be the one that ruled the world. Instead, it was this smaller band called Nirvana on the same label, Sub Pop Records, that really changed the world. Soundgarden, however, had a very respectable career, was one of the big alternative era arena rock bands headlining Lollapalooza, headlining around the world, and then falling apart. In part because there were always two huge talents and two big egos. Singer Chris Cornell and guitarist Kim Thale. Also, two of the longest sets of hair, I think, in rock history ever. Those guys are coming back. In fact, Soundgarden first came back with a song on the uh, soundtrack for the new Avengers movie a while back. Now we have a full-on album, King Animal. Let's play a song from it and then come back and give our opinions. This is the tune that closes the record. It's called Rowing by Soundgarden on Sound Opinions.
0: That is rowing from the new Soundgarden album called King Animal, first in 16 years, as Jim mentioned. Jim, been away too long, maybe so. I know that their fans felt that there was unfinished business here with this band, particularly given the career apart from Soundgarden that uh, Chris Cornell has had since the band broke up. That has been an up-and-down proposition,
3: to say the least. Yeah, mostly down. <laughs> I, I think, you know, two of the harshest reviews in Sound Opinions history, Lou Reed and Metallica's album and Scream by Chris Cornell, the yes. 2009 Timbaland-produced Electronica record. Yes, the solo years have not been kind to
0: Chris Cornell. But I have to say, as a big Soundgarden fan, especially of the earlier stuff, I was heartened by the first few songs on this record. I thought, wow, they're back. And what I loved about Soundgarden... With was Thiel and Ben Shepard on bass and Matt Cameron on drums, this great power trio supporting Cornell's vocals that had this sort of twisted take on traditional metal. You mentioned Sabbath and Zeppelin. Those influences are definitely there. But there was always something a little weird, a little bit off about what they were doing in a really good way. I was heartened by those first three songs, but then what I'm starting to hear in the latter half of this record is a Cornell solo record in disguise, Mm. and that is not a good thing. No. Cornell and a backing band, basically. I'm not hearing the other three guys in this band as a vital force anymore. As a result, I'm
3: very disappointed in this record, a trash-it record for me. I don't know if I'm disappointed so much as I've consistently never liked Soundgarden or Chris Cornell. I will say this here definitively, and the hate mail will pour in. Soundgarden, I think, is the most overrated band of the alternative era. Ooh. They were long-haired, bad metal. Not not good metal. I don't mean like Judas Priest metal. No, I don't know about I that. mean bad generic metal, you know, flailing that hair around, sexist tropes all over the place. I was glad Nirvana was the band that ruled Seattle and the world. I'd even take Pearl Jam over Soundgarden. I don't need them back, all right? There was no unfinished business. There was one... Fine moment with Black Hole Sun and the psychedelic turn that they took on that album. Super unknown, but I think they were ripping off the screaming trees. There's a band from Seattle from this era I would much rather have back. Soundgarden has never met a heavy metal cliche that it hasn't embraced. I could care less about this record. This is a trash it record, Greg. Double trash it from the
0: critics at Sound Opinions, but you may have a different opinion if you do on Soundgarden's King Animal. Give us a call at 888-859-1800. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
1: Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
3: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and pop a quarter in the jukebox, playing a track we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what do you got? Jim, thank
0: you. Uh, I'm inspired by our discussion of Big Star today. We talked about uh, this term power pop a lot in discussing Big Star, and in many ways, the quintessential power-pop band. That terminology goes back to Pete Townsend in The Who in the mid-60s when he was describing their pre-rock opera sound. Guitar-based, very tight arrangements, harmony vocals, melody at the forefront. That's that sound that became paramount with those big star records that we were talking about earlier today. And that's a sound that goes on and on and on. We're hearing it every part of the world. The Midwest, for whatever reason, has been a big purveyor of power pop in the last few decades. We had the Raspberries out of Cleveland and Shoes in Zion, Illinois, Cheap Trick out of Rockford, Marshall Crenshaw and the Romantics out of Detroit, Material Issue out of Chicago. But the band I'm going to play is probably one of the least appreciated of the great power pop bands of the last two decades. A band out of Chicago. Uh, they've had numerous lineups over the years, but one constant in that band has been the primary singer and songwriter, Jeff Lusher. I think he's got a terrific voice. He's steeped as much in Prince and Soul and Funk as he is in that British Invasion music that so inspired Big Star. And I think he brought the two together in the Green albums that he was making starting in 1986. It is a gem. It is one of the great underground power pop records you're ever going to want to hear. Great harmony vocals, great melodies, those jangly guitars. And there's an edge to Lesher's voice that I think puts green above most power pop bands some of the power pop bands tend to sound a little too white a little too smoothed out there was a sense of urgency in green's music that I think is missing from some of the others and you can hear it on this track she's not a little girl from green on sound opinions I know that
1: everything is different Since I don't-
3: with She's Not a Little Girl, Greg's D.I.J. for the week. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark Bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what have we got for our listeners next
0: week? Next week, Jim, we're going to find out what a band that includes members of Spoon and Wolf Parade sounds like when
3: Divine Fits visits our studio. Greg, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producer is Annie Minhoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman and a man who just can't get enough of that Scream album by Chris Cornell. Tori Southside Malatia is our executive producer.
0: sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages. Jim and Greg, my name is Dixon. I'm calling from Chicago. Uh, just finished listening to your review of Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City on the podcast, and Jim, I couldn't disagree with you more. You criticize Kendrick Lamar for celebrating violence and objectifying women, but when it comes to other rappers, you completely ignore those things. For example, when you reviewed Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, you excused all the misogyny by saying, yeah, but the beats are amazing. And we all know Kanye West is obnoxious, so whatever. But my favorite part of your review was when you brought up recent albums by LP and Killer Mike, like they were some kind of positive alternative. Have you listened to those albums? They're brilliant, but they have all of the elements that you say you dislike about Good Kid Mad City. Look, if you want to say hip-hop is a corrosive genre of music, then go right ahead. But don't single out one rapper for criticism when you give a pass to a whole bunch of other rappers who are doing the exact same thing. Keep up the good work, guys, and Jim, I really hope you do give that album another lesson.
1: Dreams of living life like rappers do. Like rappers do, like rappers do. Bump that newbie 40 at, at the school. You know Big Ballin' with my own man. Steven's had us thinking rational, thinking rational.
2: Back to Hi, my name is Karen Fine I was listening to this week's show The Holiday Program And one segment was about the resurgence of Grunge music and how um, It's affecting Hollywood They're producing all these new shows And I, I did have to almost Turn over in my grave um, Even though I'm not dead yet But me being an idiot I decided to go ahead and jump into the pool of idiots and if I did a show, it would be called Black Hole Sun. And, of course, it would be about the different universes and aliens and how it affects um, Earthlings functioning in this universe as we know it. So there you have it. That's my pitch. If it goes well and goes to Hollywood, I'm copywriting it on the air as we speak. Karen Fine and Associates out of Podunk, Springfield, Illinois. Love your show. Black hole sun, won't you come?
1: Wash with the rain. Black hole sun, won't you, come? won't
2: you come? Won't you come? This is Amy from Chicago, and this is to Jim D'Agata and his critiques of Fiona Apple's The Isler Wheel album. In your first review of the album, you complained about the lyrics on Hot Knife, and then I read your review, you got the lyrics wrong. It's not, I can't feisty, it's, I get feisty. If you're going to complain about the merits of the songs, perhaps you should do a little research. Plus, you've given them the impression that the turkey shoot is about artists you respect who should have produced a better album. You've made it clear that numerous times that you don't like on Apple, negating the whole rules that you applied. This is just an excuse to bitch, which is fine. If it's your opinion, that's fine. But for Christ's sake, check your, <laughs> check your damn facts. Thanks, guys. And um, I'll keep listening to the show taking a ride to my old
1: haunts she's in my blood i reside
2: in my nightlife my hey jim and greg this is ryan from Marysville. just listened to the uh, turkey shoot podcast and i cannot agree more with your green Day. one of your picks because while wow, that's that is terrible i was uh, listening to that with my mom cuz my mom always gets the uh, new green day albums and one of the tracks that was playing was a song called nightlife and it was horrible like it sounded like a porno and i was in the car with my mom so very awkward terrible album thanks guys take it to my old no more messages